Welcome back to the Finding Homes podcast with David Grant. I'm here with Bernadette Heron, senior social worker in the adoption team in Buckinghamshire, and also with Tarn Bright, who's the CEO of Home for Good. And we're going to be talking about finding homes for children, either for adoption or for fostering, who fall into sort of like the BAMA category, who aren't the ones that get picked up straight away, but need to be. So we're going to start with Bernadette. Bernadette, you're a very experienced social worker and very experienced in the field of finding homes for children who need families. When you get two in your caseload and they come in at the same time and it's a young white child and it's a young black mixed race Asian child, whatever, do you instinctively just know that one is going to be harder to place than the other? Absolutely. And when we say harder to place, it's more longer to place. So, for instance, one of my colleagues a few years ago had an adorable young black child on her caseload. And we didn't have any black adopters at the time. And although the, the child was on Linkmaker, it was still taking a while for adopters to come forward. But she persevered because... What we know, and I know that we're going to go on and talk about this, is that meeting that need, that cultural need within the family is just as important as meeting that emotional need or that physical need for a child. And so we will go all out to see if that's what we can do. Alternatively, we will also, um, if there are any other adopters that want to be placed with children of the different ethnic um, background, we will also go in there and work with them and try to prepare them to be able to take care of a child that doesn't meet their um, cultural match, let's say. So, Tan, do, do, do the figures and statistics support what Bernadette was saying? Yeah, really, really sadly, they do. Um, there is an over-representation of black and minority ethnic children in the care system. And what that actually results in, for the you and the eyes having this conversation today, that means that far fewer black children are adopted than white children. Now, the only reason that that can be the way it is is because there are not enough matched adopters to be able to care for those children. But it also means that those black children are waiting the longest. In fact, the statistics are worse than even... I would have them on a piece of paper in front of me here in as much as that I've recently looked at some new statistics coming out. And in 2020, it was halved the number of black children who were adopted. So unfortunately, as low as the figure was in 2020, sorry, 2019, 120 black children were adopted. In the whole in, country. In the whole country. The following year, only 60. So that was a marked reduction, halved numbers of black children in the care system were adopted. Now, that therefore means that they went on to be fostered because if they weren't finding permanency through adoption, they will still have needed permanency through fostering. And with credit due to the social workers who I work with and the incredible foster carers that Home for Good works with, oftentimes foster care isn't always that long-term, i.e. up to 18 or 21 years old, 
home that we would so wish for our young people. And I was speaking to just a young lad, uh, a, a boy from Jamaica, just a couple of weeks ago. And he was 15 at the time of the conversation that I was having with him. And he was on his 37th foster placement. Now, wow. I asked all sorts of questions that were appropriate. And he turned around to me and he said, I didn't know how to love. And so I stopped even trying. And by his own admission, would exhibit behaviours that he really just knew by then, David, would just mean that people weren't going to put up with him and he would be wrapped wrap, back around the circle again. And in one sense, what he was in fact trying to say was, is there anyone that would love me enough or that could show me how to love myself? And that conversation with that young man has been written in my journal for the single reason that I never want to forget it. Who could? Who could? And I want to make sure that I represent that young man wherever and however I can in the conversations that I'm having around why it's so important to have homes where there are black and minority ethnic carers who might have looked like him, sounded like him, appreciated rap culture, whatever the music might be, who would have fed him food, which gave him a sense of well-being just because it felt normal to him. And I just found that that was a conversation that, whilst painful, was one I do not want to forget. I'm going to ask a difficult question then, and this is to both of you. Do you think that any of the reason why these figures have been halved from the low 120s to the appalling 60, only 60, has anything to do with the paucity of black, minority, ethnic or mixed race adopters? It's actually that I believe we don't have the adopters. And, and I can testify for the fact that in the conversations that we have, we did some uh, research, David, with Savanta Comres uh, just two years ago now, and half of black UK adults say they would consider adopting and fostering if they knew the need. I go on from that to say that also the adults from black and minority ethnic groups are twice as likely to have considered fostering and adoption because of the informal arrangement that has become part, we call the word natural. And in podcast one, we talked around uh, the fact that this within the African and Caribbean communities, this is just seen as normal. That if you've got a spare room, you have a niece, nephew, wider family, just live with you as kin. So we know that there is therefore goodwill. We know that there is an absolute openness. But what we're finding is it's the awareness raising piece. There's a gap. There's a, there's a miss translation somewhere and so again that's why home for good is putting this as one of our strategic priorities because if we can raise this awareness across the 50,000 churches partner with amazing people like you David social workers like Bernadette then we will be able to god willing increase those numbers of black and minority ethnic children finding permanency and also I think did the statistics show that a lot of the communities were wanting to be assessed by black social workers. They felt, they felt that was important. Do you know what? We've actually got a statistic on that. And mm. we have got here that 60% of black adults would want to be assessed by a social worker with a similar ethnicity versus 40% of the white community saying the same. 
Wow. Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. Yeah. Speaks somebody, somebody who would get you. Yeah. That's it. And not think that the things that are perfectly natural are somehow dysfunctional. Yes. Just because they're different. Absolutely. I mean, you, you touched on food and, you know, just, just looking across a room, if you like, and seeing somebody who looks remotely like you. Beyond that, why do you think it's important that, that somehow the adopter's culture, heritage, appearance is reflected in the, adopted, the adopting family, the adoptive family? So one of the things that I say to my adopters when I'm training them is that these are adopters that are willing to care for a child of a different ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So I, I get them to consider and I say, well, you know, if, I, if I'm walking a road with my friends that I've walked from primary school, they would have been in my life when I would have experienced racism, um, you know, uh, all sorts of different experiences that I would have had. They would have seen that. They would have seen how that affected me. Mm-hmm. If you've not had that experience and you're wanting to raise a child that's black, how are you able to fully give them the skills that they need? We all know that racism in itself is like a trauma. Mm -hmm. And we know how trauma affects children. So we've got to be able to equip our children to understand racism, not if, but, or maybe, but when it comes to us. We have to be able to equip our children. So with that in mind, it is very important that a child, I believe, is raised within a home where the parents get that, understand that, can equip them with that. So what we're doing here is, I just want to clarify, we are not saying that if there are white potential adopters watching this who who are open to adopting a child regardless of race or, or disability or whatever, age, that they are not welcome. What we are saying is we just need more. Yes, absolutely. That's the message that we're getting out there. Great. Yeah. This is the part of the podcast where we get to hear stories, real lived experience. Last week, we heard from Paula about being an adopter. This week, we're going to hear from Simon Jay about his journey being not just an adopter in adulthood, but being adopted in childhood. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Thank you very much for being willing to to come here and share your story. Can you tell us, tell us your story? Yeah, so I guess my starting place will be, unsurprisingly, with my birth mm-hmm. dad, my birth mum. Uh, and I think this, uh, in terms of what we're talking about today, I think this is really relevant. So my birth dad was a Guyanese, and he met my mum, I think, at a, a festival, music festival. And during this time, um, my mum became pregnant with me. Now, shortly after my mum became pregnant, and I'm not sure my birth dad has ever known this uh that she was pregnant he was arrested and found that he had a small um stash of cannabis on him now back then back in the early 17s being a black man uh found with cannabis um it was quite often that you could be sent to prison and that's what happened to him he went to prison and that was the last contact my mum had had wow um, so she was quite young and it didn't want to bring up a child as a, as a single mum. 
uh, felt that it was also the wrong thing to bring up a child, particularly a child that would be uh, mixed heritage. So she put me up for adoption. How old were you at this point? Uh, when I was adopted, uh, I, I joined my family at six months. Oh, right. So, so really, it, it almost was, from birth. From, from birth. Before I was born, she had already made that decision that she, I was going to be adopted. Right. Um, now, again, back in the early 70s, there was a feeling that the better places for children would be in these families, you know, white families that were uh, financially stable, had good education and stuff like that. So, as I said, six months into my life, I found myself uh, with a white family uh, in the southwest of England in a community of 40,000 people or so where two of those were black. That was me and my other adopted brother from different parents. I thought you were going to... I thought for a moment you meant 2,000, as in 5%. No. But you mean two. Who? Right, okay, yeah. as in naught point naught naught five percent Yeah. Okay, right, so you were the diversity. I, well, I mean, I guess, I, I, I guess you could, I, th- I think we were, I mean, the truth is we made a huge impact in that town mm. um, because we were just, we were just this anomaly. At what point did you realise, hold on, I'm, I'm different. I, I look different to the, mm. those around me. In fact, I look different to my mum and dad. At what yeah. point did that sort of become a cognitive yeah. realisation? Um, always. Uh, I think uh, reflecting back uh, all of my childhood and a lot of my early adulthood, I carried this sense that I just did not fit in. Mm-hmm. It's always been there. There's always been this, this thing that I've had with me is I don't belong. Mm. But when I was adopted, I was given a different birthday than what I was born on. I was given a different name than uh, what I was originally named. And my parents did not even know the country that my birth father was from. So wow. that was the, a complete separation. You are now a new... Uh, you know, your whole history begins six months into your life. There's nothing has come before and you know nowadays of course when when adoptions happen because because we've adopted you know a great deal about the background of Mm. the child that you're adopting yeah do you think that it would have or could possibly have changed anything for you even in the situation you found yourself in with two white adopters in a in a very white town yeah had you known anything of your origins yeah it to be honest with you been a huge difference um, I th- felt that I was lost, um, that I didn't know who I was growing up at all. And um, on those kids, we talk about kids, don't we, that kids are, are resilient. And I always question, what do we mean by resilient? Often what we mean is kids are great at coming up with coping strategies. Yeah. Right. But then uh, later on in life, that always catches up. And, and I think for myself, so I was um, 21 and I decided to go to Birmingham to go to university. And I remember the first day at university, I remember having a total identity 
breakdown. Just my identity crisis just, just was a huge. I stood in this city and I just, all of these black people. But the thing about these black people, I'm really conflicted because the thing about these black people, when I would engage and talk to these black people that I knew nothing about, they would initially treat me as if I was a black person before mm. very quickly finding out that I was also different. Yes. This is weird guy who speaks in this different accent and who doesn't understand the language and who isn't able to understand the music and the culture and has never had, you know, rice and peas or anything like that. And I ended up even, in even a worse situation. I ended up not belonging anywhere. You know, so there was this one community didn't belong. And then there was this white community who, though I had understood the culture, I also didn't belong. So you found yourself culturally white. Yeah. Ethnically black. Yeah. Not being sort of feeling a sense of belonging. Yeah. In either. Yeah. How did that affect you? I... So I think that that so so as a child it was hugely hugely tough mm-hmm. um, growing up. Um, I think that the the values around me were from education, from the the conversations that we used to have, was that that black people were inferior, mm-hmm. uh, white people were the saviors. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the white people that conquered the world. Um, and where did that come from? Did that come from home or school or just something that was in the ether? Both, but very intentionally from school, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember my, our history lessons, you know, learning about Christopher Columbus and Sir Francis Drake and how they would go to these different areas and there would be these uh, um, these sort of like dysfunctional black people that they had to civilise. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I was one of it. So, so, so I saw, I saw, I saw, myself within these dysfunctional black people um and and again from home again it was very much just assumed that as a as a young black person that i would not be very uh uh, would not be very academic so i again was they typically put in all of the uh, uh competitions to do with sport and running and fighting everybody used to want to fight me like all the kids used to want to fight me because it's like if you can beat up this kid, then you're tough because he's a black kid and they're strong. And I was, I remember the day where I was in my, we call it, it's first, I call it first year, I think it's year seven, being in the year seven class at secondary school and a teacher coming in and calling out my name. And I had to leave that class and I was taken to the, what was called the remedial class. Mm-hmm. And there I spent my education. Um, learning with lots of other young people who had special, what we, we understand as special educational needs, even though I had no special educational needs, um, simply for being black. So when I left school, I left school with no qualifications whatsoever. Just, it was zilch. Um, How did you end up at university? Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> I think, I mean, I mean, the truth is, if, if, if we're big enough, um, occasionally I, I, I would big up church, yeah. Christian communities. And I think what actually happened is I got involved in a Christian youth club. Yeah. Um, it's Urban Saints, it mm-hmm. was called now. And for the first time in my life, there was a group of people. I mean, this is 
was so exciting, I think, about, you know, home-figured vision. For the first time in my life, there was a group of people that actually said, you are precious. You are loved. You are special simply for being you. And it was that that gave me the confidence and the understanding. Actually, if there is a if there's a God that loves me, then actual fact, I'm lovable. Um, and if I'm lovable, then people are actually going to want to hang out with me, want to mm-hmm. hear me, want to you know. And and that gave me the confidence to go back into education. Uh, and then eventually at 21, I was able to, um, well, I did an access course first, and then I was able to go to university to study, to do my first degree, which was a community and youth degree. So that was my arrival there. Wow. And when I got there, uh, I fell apart again, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yes. Um, and I think that, but probably the first 10 years were like a really difficult journey uh, in Birmingham. Yes. Uh, didn't really know who I was. Um, it didn't feel confident in my blackness, and, and I certainly wasn't white. Mm. It, the game changer for me was when I got my file from the social worker that told me about my history, told me about my dad. I remember finding out that I was, um, you know, Guyanese. Yeah. You know, and this... So you're, you're, you're an Anglo-Guyanese kid and not just a boy from nowhere. Yes! And do you know how excited I was? Because I, I, I remember thinking, actual fact, this, this makes me Caribbean. Yeah. It never, I'd never been Caribbean before. To all of my friends that I was hanging out with, all the, you know, the, the, my Rastafarian friends and my Jamaican friends and my uh, St. Kitts friends and Bahaman friends, all these people were real proud of supporting the West Indies cricket team. I was like, I can support the West Indies cricket team now. <laughs> <laughs> this is so exciting. And, you know, there was something, it was really interesting because when I, when I found out, and also finding out when my real birthday was, again, mm-hmm. um, finding out, the name that I'd been given at birth, when all of this stuff started to happen, that, I mean, I'd, I'd been doing some work on myself beforehand, but I could then really start the work yes. in my identity. Who I was, where do I come from? Where where are my ancestors come from? And I've since traced myself all the way back to Nigeria, which I'm so excited about. Wow. <laughs> um, I'm secretly hoping I'm, um, you know, I'm the lost prince from the... Uh, <laughs> So listening to your experience, what I'm hearing is there needs to be some kind of racial and cultural connection. And had there been, in your case, your life would have been very different. But it's more than just racial, isn't it? Being black is more than just racial. My youngest son, um, his background is Anglo-Somalian. My background is Jamaica, okay? So I have had to learn, and I'm continuing to learn, about East Africa, about Somalia, speaking to Somalians about food, about culture, about about thought. It's much more than just a a blanket thing of race, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So so one of the the things that got mentioned earlier on was it takes a village. It takes a village to raise a child. Um, I talk against these things called what I call pop-up black spaces which is the idea, we ask the question, what would you do to support 
a child from a different culture or a black child. And quite often the answer is, oh, we'd have some pictures on the walls. We'd get some different books in, learn how to do cooking and stuff like that. But I think what I want to say is we, what we got to do is we got to embed ourselves, find the people who can also speak in to that child's life. So with our daughter, when she came along, we were very intentional to making sure that her a godmother was again from her um, from her culture uh, over in Jamaica, mm-hmm. and it's brilliant. She's now fourteen, and um, when we struggle, we get godmother in, <laughs> and we send her over there, and we just say, "You you do what you need to do," and it's absolutely uh, fantastic. Um, I think. The thing that I really suffered as a child is that within our community, within our village, if you like, there was nobody there that represented me. Mm -hmm. When you were considering adoption, did your own background have a positive or negative bearing on your decision-making? We made... Um, intentional choices when looking at things like where we live. Mm-hmm. So we live in a very multicultural community. Um, and I think that's an intentional thing that when we brought our, our, our child uh, from Jamaica and St. Kitts uh, into our house, we, we, we intentionally drew on those people within our community. Looking at schools, you know, our priority for the school, given my experience, wasn't which are the schools that are the best in the league tables? Mm-hmm. So we intentionally looked at schools. Which are the schools where we can, our daughter will see herself reflected in both in what they teach, in the staff, and in the other students. So all of that stuff, I think learning and experiencing what I experienced um, has really, really helped in terms of create a community and a space where our daughter can, can fully see herself yeah listen thank you for being so real Simon thanks for having me uh yeah it's been um I would say it's been fun it's been (laughs) something so thank you very much (laughs) so Bernard having heard Simon's story about how difficult it was to find his background and to find who he is what what do you do with regard to that in Buckinghamshire well you know, thank you, Simon, for being so open with that. And I think that the key word that you mentioned in there was life story. And, you know, when we take our adopters through um, the preparation to adopt, we put a lot of emphasis on life story because we recognise how important it is for a child to understand where they're coming from because that builds into their self-esteem and their sense of self. So we're very much um, into preparing mini life story books, life story books. And training our adopters to actually be able to talk to the children about them. We also have life story consultations that we run throughout the year. So if there is a difficult story that needs to be told, because we appreciate that some of these children come with some very difficult stories, (laughs) we can actually support the adopters in bringing that story and um, explaining the history to that child. What does Home for Good do with regard to this area? Yeah, well, I mean, as we've referenced, it's a key priority for us. And so we've actually got a roadshow happening in June, which will make sure that there is a link 
uh, to how you can attend that roadshow uh, across uh, June, whereby we have got black and minority ethnic speakers. We've got people journeying with us on that roadshow so that we can raise not only awareness of the need for carers, but we can begin to talk around some of these issues together. We've also got an inquiry line, David, as well. And anyone who may be listening to this and is just wanting to explore this a bit more or talk about some of these issues, please ring the inquiry line. We can put them in contact uh, with incredible guests like Simon Jay, who uh, part-time works for Home for Goods. Mm -hmm. And we can explore that with people so that this should be a part of the learning journey for anyone who's listening to this. As much as we're wanting to find homes for children, we also want to be a part of uh, a piece of the puzzle in this jigsaw, as it were, to help bring some Mm. healing, if possible, Mm for those in their adulthood who have been adopted, but also to support adopters in understanding some of the nuance that you've so eloquently talked us through around the fact that even in the black community, there will be nuance of heritage within that. Mm -hmm. And so we are here as an organisation to support and to connect and to help join up some dots. And what a privilege that is. Thank you. Thank you, Tan. So that's it from episode two. We've heard from Simon about his experiences and how they have helped shape the way that he and his wife, Rachel, have grown their family. We've also heard about the things that need to be addressed and and maybe challenged in order for children to grow, not just in an awareness that they're home and that they belong, but in an awareness of who they are and where they're from. Join us for episode three.